So welcome to the Capital Link Shipping Master Series podcast. I am Nicholas Bornois, president of Capital Link. Our podcast series focuses on topics of critical importance to the shipping industry to educate a broader audience of investors, financiers, and industry participants. As such, our podcasts aim to be informational and educational. We regularly host exclusive interviews with C-level executives and major industry figures. I would like to welcome now our featured speaker, Charles Mulby, who is the chairman and CEO of Epic Gas, listed in Oslo in Norway. He will be interviewed by Gotham Kurana, who is the director of Drury Maritime Financial Research. On today's podcast, we will discuss Epic Gas's global LPG operations and the growth of um, uh, Epic Gas's ship-to-ship operations. Epic Gas, as I mentioned, they're listed in Oslo, own a fleet of 39 modern and high-quality fully pressurized gas carriers operating in the Americas, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. They're a global uh, player. So let's start our discussion by welcoming both Charles and Gotham. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today at our podcast. And now I will turn the floor over to Gotham to start the discussion. Thank you, Nicholas, uh, for the introduction. Hi, Charles, and thank you for joining the podcast today. Hi there, Gotham. Thank you very much. Charles, as, as Nicholas mentioned, you operate in the small LPG sector. And so to begin with, uh, I would like to ask you a few questions about the sector and spe- uh, specifically. The LPG sure. sector is fairly niche and also under the radar compared to its larger LPG vessel peers. What would you say are the main factors that differentiate the small LPG sector from the larger vessel segment? Thanks, Gautam. Uh, good question. Uh, in some respects, uh, there are many overlaps. Uh, we're part of the, the same global supply chain for delivery of LPG and PETCHEMS as the bigger vessels, and, and we have the same requirement to run vessels of the highest standard on behalf of the very same blue-chip customers, you know, such as the oil majors and, uh, and global traders. Um, and indeed, during 2017, we transshipped cargo uh, in a ship-to-ship operations from over 400 uh, of those larger vessels to do the last mile delivery. So as I say, in some respects, there's an overlap. However, um, the, the differences, uh, subtle as they are, um, are helping uh, at this point to lead to a much stronger market for our sector um, as we speak. Um, so just going to some of the differences, a typical vessel um, ranges in cost from, say, 14 to $30 million if new. Um, so in some respects, you could maybe say we're comparable to the handy size or the supermax sector of the dry bulk market compared to uh, the VL uh, uh, OCs or something like that. Um, all, all our vessels are, uh, are built in high-quality yards in Japan and fitted with pressurized LPG tanks. These tanks are cheaper than the semi-ref and refrigerated tanks that are fitted on the large vessels. Um, and, and whilst uh, it, we can load a cold cargo, it, uh, it is contained, carried, and discharged closer to ambient temperature. Uh, this allows for a cheaper cost of infrastructure for the ships themselves, uh, both afloat and then also for the, uh, the shoreside uh, terminal infrastructure, which makes it a, a perfect way of carrying LPG for developing economies and smaller ports uh, regions around the world, um, especially where the population density 
uh, will never require the installation of a significant infrastructure, which requires a refrigerated storage or a pipeline network, say, for instance. Uh, so we're not particularly active in, in the long-haul ton-mile trades from, say, the AG to, the, uh, to, the, to Asia uh, or from the U.S. Gulf to Asia, uh, where discharge is more typically into the petrochemical plants. We're instead focusing on, on the last mile delivery to a much wider range of smaller ports. Uh, and so we have at, at our access um, up to about 400 ports globally. Each year we'll maybe call at 250 to 300 of them, so different ports. Um, this diversity in the, in, in the commodity and the potential trade routes allows us also to move the assets around to capture better markets and dilute seasonality. Um, Thus, uh, we probably have a firmer floor to our earnings in, in a weaker market. Um, also, looking at the type of uh, voyages we're involved in, they're, they're, they're typically much shorter. Um, we're doing the last, uh, the last mile regional deliveries. So the average time at sea of about six days means that we're doing about 2,400 port calls a year. Uh, it's a very intensive high-touch operation compared to the bigger vessels, which are at sea for 20 or 30 days. Um, so maybe that gives a bit of colour as to some of the differentiations uh, with the larger sector. Okay, thank you, Charles. That's that's very interesting. Um, and when it comes to the cargo, is, are, is the cargo mix for your vessels similar to the cargo mix that's there for the for the larger vessels? And and could you perhaps also talk about the main demand drivers um, of of the cargo that that your vessels carry? Sure. Um, the, the typical cargoes that we're moving, we carry about 75% LPG and 25% PET chems. Um, we're moving about 2.8 million tons a year in total on a global basis across our entire fleet. Um, therefore, so 75% of that is about 2.3 million tons uh, is LPG. Um, which, if we think that there's 92 million tons a year of global seaborne LPG moved, it means that we're moving about 2.5% of, uh, of global LPG seaborne trade on our vessels. Um, the uh, the PET chems we're involved in, uh, it's propylene, VCM, butadiene, crude C4, um, and uh, that's typically from petrochemical plants uh, to nearby countries um, as part of the PET chems trade. The LPG we carry is primarily destined for the heating, cooking, and smaller energy markets in developing economies. Uh, it often ends up in bottles uh, for regional distribution and the retail markets. The, uh, the main uh, increase in demand has actually come from the increased supply of LPG for global seaborne distribution. This has obviously come from U.S. shale volumes uh, in the last five years and then also increase in exports from other countries in the Middle East and Russia. And that uh, has, on average, grown by uh, nearly 8% annualized over the last few years. Okay, thank you, Charles. Um, and is, is most of that demand, is the demand greatest from the, sort of the uh, lower and middle-income countries? So, yeah, so obviously this uh, abundant uh, so increase in supply of the commodity itself um, alongside new export terminal capacity, uh, which we all read about all the time. And then, of course, uh, significant growth in the larger vessel capacity has helped to ensure that we're seeing a strong supply of well-priced LPG into the ultimate end-user demand in the developing economies itself. Um, and that's encouraging the end-user 
to you adopt LPG as a cleaner, safer fuel. We're often seeing a government uh, government uh, initiatives to uh, to sponsor the change from, say, burning wood or biomass into the burning of uh, LPG, and uh, that can also result in um, assistance with building of new terminals, new storage facilities, new bottling plants, and, and new inland distribution and so on. Okay. Thank you for that. I think it certainly sounds quite uh, encouraging, that level of demand. Um, if you look at the supply picture for the small LPG sector, the supply picture appears to be fairly benign uh, and doesn't appear to be very much of a risk factor, unlike in the larger LPG sector. Um, what then would you say are the biggest risks to your business and, and to the continued improvement in earnings? Yes, uh, we've we've had record new builds over the period of 2014 to 17, but this is now, as you say, eased back to historically low levels, uh, alongside a, a structural pickup in scrapping, uh, which is also assisting um, to uh, to keep the fleet in in a very tight balance now. Um, it, it would be easy uh, to reference, for instance, issues around tariffs into China or uh, sanctions against Iran, um, but. Uh, we're not those those trades aren't central to our business and we also work very hard to mitigate the impacts of any single effect through either diversification of our customer and, and trading patterns um, for instance we don't mind if we fix voyage charter time charter coa single voyage um, or multiple voyages on continuous voyage charter uh, we don't mind if it's long-term or short-term cover and um, we also don't mind if it's fixed rate or, or index rate so uh, what we do in turn to mitigate the effects of um, uh, risks to the business and to the market space is if in effect through the uh, the use of uh, a very broad platform and a very open mind to uh, how we engage with customers okay so there certainly seems to be a lot of uh diversity or a lot of diversification in, in your fleet in terms of earnings. So that's that's very good to hear. Yeah. Um if if I look at your your latest results and um you reported the charter rates for the um, your seven and a half thousand and eleven thousand cubic meter vessels, that actually showed a, a slight decline and that, that decline has been sort of visible over the last three years. Uh, could you share what's driving that and, and also perhaps what your outlook is for this particular size of vessel? Yeah, so so it's it, it's more to do with the legacy of the new build supply than anything else. So, for instance, during the period 14 and 15, uh, we saw heavy new build supply for the three and a half and five thousand cubic meters, uh, and that led to a, 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 the bottom of the market for those vessels coming into 2016. And then for the the larger vessels, that they uh, they were supplied out of the shipyards primarily uh, going through into 2016 and 17. So the lag, if you like, for the absorption of those vessels into the market space has just taken uh, another year or so longer. So what we've seen is the rates, um, as we went into 2017, remaining under pressure on the on the larger size. Uh, but that, uh, as we come into 2018, is now starting to change, and we've seen rates uh, ease upwards about 5% since last summer. And uh, underlying, uh, we, we also see a pickup in, in utilization, which is harder to see. Um, you can you can obviously see the line of what's happening with the rates, but also uh, but, uh, below the line, we can see that the ships are, are moving better and also carrying more cargo on board. Um, so we would anticipate, as an outlook, we'd anticipate that uh, the rate recovery continues on the larger vessels um, back to uh, long-term average levels over the next 12, uh, 12 months. 
Um, and on, in contrast, if you see, if you look at your three and a half thousand and, and five thousand cubic meter vessels, as you said, the supply uh, came in around 2016, which is when we saw this dip, this ten-year low, uh, earnings picked up quite a bit, and it appears, at least at the moment, that the earnings for that vessel size category are, are a lot more resilient uh, compared to the larger vessels. What is different about these vessels, these smaller vessels, relative to the larger vessels? Is it is it a case that these vessels have different trading patterns? They have different cargoes. What, what is what is driving this? The the, the customers uh, and the trading patterns are relatively similar. Although, of course, uh, like any other shipping sector, you have the ongoing upsizing. So, what was a five thousand cubic meter vessel yesterday is a seven and a half thousand cubic meter vessel tomorrow, and so on. And that continues in all shipping sectors where customers gradually move up. Uh, uh, they, they upsize their operations onto the larger, more efficient vessels. But uh, coming back uh, to, to your question, the, the, the sort of the differences we see, uh, for instance, uh, the uh, three and a half and five thousand cubic meter vessels, there's been a lot of scrapping in that sector relative to the larger vessels, and that's because obviously the the smaller, older vessels are the ones that exist. Um, you don't have that many large, old pressure vessels. You have a lot of small old pressure vessels and so they're the ones that are dropping out uh, and being scrapped uh, and uh, not the larger ones and I think that's helping to create a bit of a tightness also uh, we we can carry some of the trades where some of the older semi-reth and ethylene capable vessels have been involved in the past and uh, there's a number of those vessels that have been scrapped in the last two or three years and that's created incremental demand for the small pressurized vessels um, so I think that, that that's a couple of, of, the, of the hints, if you like, uh, as to what's going on. And then, uh, and we feel that the utilisation on those smaller vessels snapped tight uh, at the end of 2016, uh, and that's exactly what we've seen happening on the larger vessels in the last six months or so. Is it also it's it's getting tighter and tighter on the larger vessels, on the utilisation. So we think the larger vessels are effectively running a year or so behind the smaller ones in, in the supply curve and utilization curve. Okay, thank you for that. I, I guess in addition to the uh, competition, you also uh, you have uh, you operate in a sector where it's uh, which is fairly technically challenging. So LPG carriers are arguably amongst the most difficult to manage uh, from a technical perspective. How do you ensure that your vessels operate with uh, minimal downtime and that Epic becomes a preferred company for charters? That's uh, what keeps our crew and shore teams awake at night, and especially the management teams. Um, we, we have an approach of customer first across the group. Uh, our vision is to be our customer's partner of choice, um, and uh, we wish to make working with us as safe and easy as possible for any customer. And uh, that's where we focus uh, all the time. Uh, our DNA as an organization, whether it's our people or our hardware, uh, we're driven towards a quality approach. For instance, all of our vessels are built in, in high-quality yards in Japan, which ensures we start with a high-quality asset, asset which can be with us for 20 years or more into the future. Uh, we do all of our commercial and technical management in-house so that we have full control over it and, of course, full responsibility for it. If something goes wrong, we, we have nowhere to hide. We have to put our hands up. And likewise, if something goes well, we know exactly who to praise. Um, our technical and safety teams uh, are headquartered in Singapore. Uh, there's a small team in London to help coordinate with our vessels uh, 
hands-on in the West. Uh, our crewing and training is managed in-house from the Philippines. Uh, when it comes to maintenance, we have a very long-term approach. Uh, if we order a new build, we expect it to last for 30 years. That's the average uh, life of a pressurized LPG vessel. Um, so you have to maintain it for the long term. There's no point saving a dollar in repairs today if it's going to cost us $5 to repair it in the future. Uh, if a vessel is in our fleet at the age of 15, we put it through the Enhanced Survey Program, the CAP program, which assists in ensuring that we can maintain the all major approvals. Uh, similarly, uh, we're very aware that if a vessel that is off hire or not acceptable to customer, that's also losing out on, a, on revenue opportunity. So uh, there's a cost uh, to not maintaining a vessel. Uh, likewise, if you do maintain a vessel, the carrot is that you should get more revenue on it. Um, we also have a, a KPI network um, across the group that monitors our safety uh, of fire and vessel utilization uh, alongside a very strong emphasis on training uh, afloat and ashore. And that's for both uh, our 1,200 seafarers and our shore-based staff. We see training as critical. Um, safety and quality is a never-ending journey. And with the fast-evolving digital environment we're all in today, so are the systems and processes that we use to manage our vessels. So we really can't rest in ensuring that we have the latest and the best training in what we do. Okay, thank you for that. That's certainly very prudent. Um, speaking of customers, uh, could you share details on, on, on the typical profile of, of your customers? What are, they, are these customers mainly traders or are they sort of local gas distribution companies? And how, how yeah, uh, uh, fragmented is your customer base? The, the, the typical customer we have is, is one of the, the global oil majors um, uh, or one of the very large international traders. And... Uh, they typically are at one end or the other of the supply chain we're involved in, or if you're a trader, maybe they're in the middle as well. Uh, so, for instance, we could be acting on behalf of uh, an oil refinery that produces LPG as a byproduct and has to export some volume, uh, and therefore our customer would be the oil major who runs the refinery, and, and they will be selling the commodity into a six-month or a 12-month tender, uh, maybe into, uh, say, if it's in the Mediterranean, into North Africa, or if it's in, in Asia, it would be into uh, Sri Lanka or uh, Pakistan or Bangladesh or Southeast Asia. Um, we also work for the receivers. Uh, so there could be um, one of the bigger receivers has got an import facility and it's buying uh, delivered. Um, under a tender, sorry, it's buying FOB from the shipper and then it has to raise the delivery itself under the tender and so we'll do a six or 12 month contract uh, with them. Most of the commodity is bought or sold under a tender process uh, which typically is for six or 12 month supply. Okay, thank you Charles. I think all of this sounds uh, very positive for your sector. Uh, the new building market of course is, is quite slow uh, but given the sort of positive outlook for the small vessel segment, is, is that translating into more S&P activity in the small gas vessel sector? And are you starting to see vessel prices beginning to firm on the back of the positive outlook? Definitely. Uh, as, as we saw the smaller ship market tighten at the back end of 2016, we also started to see a pickup in uh, second-hand vessel uh, transactions. Uh, so, for instance, 2014-15, there was maybe 10, 11, 12 
uh, transactions in the year. Uh, very low volume, one a month, uh, not much at all. Uh, we came into 2017 and uh, there were 27 transactions that year on the smaller gas ships. And this year, year to date, uh, first half, we've already seen 14. So that momentum is maintaining, maybe even picking up a little bit more. Uh, and of course, yeah, you, you get more liquidity, uh, then uh, there's more demand and clearly uh, that has an impact on the price. So we've seen uh, these vessels gradually uh, ticking up in price um, as, as the uh, last two years have passed. And uh, whilst the original transactions have been very much focused around the smaller vessels, the three and a halves, uh, the fours, the fives, uh, we've also seen a couple of transactions on slightly larger vessels in the last six to 12 months. Okay, uh, thank you, Charles. I think this all uh, certainly appears to be quite uh, exciting times ahead for your sector. Um, Charles, I very much enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, with that, I'm going to hand us back to Nicholas Barnosis from Capital Link. Um, thank you for participating in today's podcast. Well, I would like to thank, thank you, you both for thank you, Gotham. Thank you, Charles, for a very interesting uh, discussion. Uh, the LPG sector is uh, is a sector of uh, critical importance to the industry, to global trade. Um, it has improving fundamentals, and um, we are delighted to have had both of you today to discuss this uh, sector with us. Thank you very much, and we look forward to the next podcast. Thank you very much again. Bye-bye.